Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And it's election day, and there are important elections happening in Greenfield and Amherst and East Hampton and Northampton for city council, town council, school committee. Really important. The future of the cities and towns are, in fact, very much in play and at stake today. And I was really encouraged yesterday to hear from Senator Joe Comerford and from the mayor that they have some optimism that people will go out and vote today, even though it's an off-year election, and therefore there's not as much interest or enthusiasm about going to the polls. But for those of us who care of what happens in our communities, and I think that's most of our listeners, today really matters. Buzz? Never so important is it a time when our democracy is imperiled. And used to be the saying was that all politics are local. I'm starting to think all politics are national. And what we have to do is get back to local. It was interesting, Bill, to talk to Senator Joe Comerford and Mayor G.L. Shara. Um, while G.L. Shara pointed out that she didn't wish to say how she was voting because whoever wins whatever position she'll have to be working, she'll get the opportunity to work with that. And person. school committee or city council, right? They have to have, they have to get, well, they don't have to get along, but it would make life a lot easier. It if would they make did. life easier. She made that clear. But Senator Comerford was willing to share her her uh, her voting choices, uh, she will be voting for Aileen Davis and Gwen Agna. She for school us. committee here in Northampton. Correct, uh, Aileen Davis and Gwen Agna. I thought that was really interesting. I thought it was funny the way she put it. I can't. Well, I can't. She didn't say that. She said, "I'm not going to explicitly make an endorsement, but I'm willing to tell you who I'm voting for." <laughs> it's especially <laughs> funny since you asked her for an endorsement. She said, "No, I'm not willing to do that, but I'll tell you who I'm voting for." <laughs> I. We should note, these are important races. We encourage everyone to go vote. Polls are open until 8 o'clock this evening. And we will, Dan Torres, we're going to be having election coverage tonight. Want to tell our listeners about that? Yes. We start at 8 p.m., go to 10 p.m. Me, you, Sarah Robertson, we'll have call-ins. We'll have the mayors hopefully call in, a couple of them, um, maybe at 9 o'clock when we get more results. But it should be really exciting. Um, we want to recap kind of all the different elections and things that we'll be looking at. And I think it's important to note that we are likely to have results early tonight compared to other elections. Why is that? Because, well, not that many races to have to tabulate and bring to City Hall to have the numbers counted. And with a little luck, we'll get some direct counts from uh, the wards in Northampton uh, where there are elections, Ward 3 and Ward 4 in particular. And we'll be able to, I think, Certainly, early in the evening, we'll be able to share results, and they'll be coming in. Sadly, so, Bill, I, I did, on today's Globe, there is an article on the first page um, uh, about off-year elections. That is odd year, odd-numbered year elections. And uh, some, uh, the article tells us that in some races on off-year elections recently, there's been only a four percent voter turnout. I think it is so important for people to vote. It's just. Uh, we really need to keep this thing alive, and it is imperiled these days. Our vote matters. Yeah, I'd point out there was an election night. I was giving a talk at the League of Women Voters here in Northampton. The election vote, the election results came in. There was a ballot question about an override, and the and the ballot question was decided. It was reported that night by exactly one vote. Oh boy, one. That's vote. how important it is. Yeah. There was a recount. It turned out to be seven or eight votes. That said, uh, every vote in these elections really counts, particularly when it is anticipated that there'll be a relatively small turnout. 
As Dan Quayle once wrote, don't forget to vote, V-O-T. <laughs> nah, nah, even Dan Quayle didn't do that. <laughs> Come on. He, what did he, what did he uh, misspell? Potato. 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 Right. And I, ever Correcting since, a first grader. And ever since Dan Quayle got that wrong, I've, been, con- wrong I've been confused how to spell Thank tomato. Thank you. I've done the same thing. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. Listen, we are, we are so pleased to have with us in the studio today Jonathan Haar. Of course, Jonathan is uh, famous for his book, A Civil Action, made into a uh, movie of wide acclaim starring John Travolta. And he has another movie. Well, that's probably not quite correctly stated. He is the author of a piece that has been made into a movie that is now being shown on Amazon and Amazon Prime. And I'm really, really pleased to be able to talk to Jonathan about the film and the piece that he wrote for The New Yorker, The Burial. I've seen the film. It's really... I think, just fascinating and really well done. Are you pleased with how The Burial came out? And while you're telling us your reaction to the film, uh, tell our listeners, if you would, please, a bit of the story. Jonathan Haar. Uh, am I pleased with, uh, with the movie? Yeah, it's, it's a pretty good movie. Um, as far as Hollywood goes, I think Jamie Foxx was... A, Jamie Foxx stars. Jamie Foxx stars in it. He plays a lawyer. Um, who represents, he's a black lawyer, obviously, and he, he represents uh, a white funeral home owner whose uh, business is in jeopardy because of a deal he made uh, that, that went sour. So um, he's suing him for, it was a contractual issue, and it was supposed to be, you know, maybe a few million dollars in value. By the end, he, when he hires this, this flamboyant lawyer, Willie Gary, he, Willie Gary gets a verdict of $500 million at the end. Um, and it's, so it's a kind of, you know, it's a sort of, um, it's a courtroom drama, and courtroom dramas are pretty easy to write because there's a dispute and there are two, there are two people against each other and you want to know what the outcome is. Oh, good. It's pretty easy to write. I'll just, wind, I mean, I'll just wander over to Superior Court today, write a few things down, I, I mean, and get myself a bestseller. I got it. I, I, mean, I believe Tommy Lee Jones is in this. Tommy movie. Lee Jones is, too, yeah. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, uh, he, he plays the white guy, the old white man from Biloxi, Mississippi, that uh, Willie Gary ends up representing. He does a... I think an amazing job in the film. I really You've it, seen it, Bill? I've s- seen it and it just goes by and I, it does not let you go. It grabs you by the collar at the beginning and you want to know what happens next. You do not go to the bathroom, you do not go for popcorn, you do not take <laughs> a break. You don't do any of those things. You don't. It's really good. Tell us a bit I about I wish I could take you know all the cre- I wish I could take all the credit for that, but it's well. Uh, you can do it. Take all the credit. Why not? You took all the credit for civil action. No, what I the mean, heck? you know, <laughs> writing is a solitary job, and I write my thing, and and then if it gets optioned or bought by the movies, hundreds of people are involved. I mean, you you have actors, you have the director, you have producers, you have tons of money and set designers and lighting and everything else. I can't control anything. I did have a few suggestions to make, but uh, nobody wanted my opinion. Well, that's not exactly true. You were invited. We do. To, we were invited to. You were invited to a screening uh, 
early, I guess they call it the rough cuts, and they asked for your suggestions. No, I, I wasn't yes? invited to the screening. You've, the you, screening you, was in L.A., so I didn't go to it. Oh, you didn't? No. I, your I, daughter, Joe. Oh, did. you invited my daughter, and then you stood her up. Okay, got it. <laughs> and she gave me feedback. Yeah. So I, I just have a quick question because there's been a strike going on. When was the film actually made? It was made before the strike began. It was made uh, last, basically last year. Tell us a bit about the tension, uh, the pivot points in the story, and I guess go back to when you wrote it and how you found it. I found it. It was it was an it was on the um, it was it was an article in the front page of the New York Times, um, which I read, but I wasn't interested in it. I'd finished a civil action, which was you know a, a legal story, and I wanted to do something else. Um, but I was convinced by a friend of mine, Bobby Shriver, uh, to to do it. He he basically basically convinced me to do it. He wanted me to write a book, and uh, I didn't want to write a book, so I, uh, I wrote this piece for the New Yorker magazine. It took me about you know about a year to do, which in Jonathan Har time is really quick. It's pretty quick. Yeah. 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 <laughs> But yeah. you found this story. And what intrigued you about the story? Um, there's, you know, there, there, there was, uh, first of all, it, when, I, when I said that, you know, um, legal cases are easy to write, what I meant was that they have a perfect narrative structure of two people uh, of a contest, of people in disagreement, and and there's an outcome, so there's a perfect narrative arc to 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 legal stories. But there are also all of these uh, uh, cul-de-sacs and detours. This is a story about race. This is a story about class. This is a story about family. This is a story about essential elements of the human condition. I mean, that's I think what makes it so compelling. It's not just that it is in fact a courtroom drama. It is, in fact, a drama about all sorts of aspects of our lives. Yeah, that's I, 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 that's true. Especially, it's about it's about uh, death and people getting buried in the funeral business. That's one part of it for sure. Yeah, and it's uh, kind of an awkward place for us to uh, uh, talk about stuff. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, it's not it's not a it's not something we love talking. Let's talk about death. Let's talk about burial. But there it is, right in front of you, because it's a family business. It is a local business. I mean, it does not resonate. Not just that, but it happens to all of us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to divert our attention from the burial, which is coming up, and we'll hear about exactly how we can access it on Amazon Prime. And but uh, I'm interested in your interest. First, was in a courtroom drama involving. Uh, the, the nightmare of uh, contamination to natural resources. And then you went to a painting and Caravaggio, and now you're doing yeah. death. So <coughs> tell yeah. me, what grabs your actually, interest? How does this happen? I actually uh, went to the Willie Gary story, to the burial story, before I began the Caravaggio story. And by then I was really Which, which we should point out uh, was... A, an article in The New Yorker, The Lost Painting, and then became a book, which was on the New York Times bestseller list as well. Yeah. Okay, back to the burial. <clears throat> back to the burial. I wish that I had um, written it as a book rather than, than a New Yorker article because if, it had been if I'd written it as a book with all the publicity for the movie, 
I'd be getting royalties. Nobody's going back to to, the, to look up a no one's going year back. old New Yorker. And when did you write it? What year was, was it the article? It came out in 1999. Okay. And so between 1999 and 2013, when this movie was released, uh, what happened? Oh, God, it was, you know, it got lost in Hollywood limbo. It was first uh, optioned by Warner Brothers uh, twice, and then they let the option drop, and Sony Pictures picked it up, and they let the option drop. And finally, a small production company, Doubled Nickel, picked it up, and we're very, um, very enthusiastic about it. Uh, but still, it had a hard time getting made. And um, what I'm told was that the head of Amazon Pictures, the entire th- Amazon Pictures that includes both movies and series that they do, um, was not interested in the courtroom drama. Um, but what happened was uh, George Floyd. George Floyd was was uh, we know the story of George Floyd. He was uh, he was murdered, and suddenly, you know they. Amazon was not going to let go of a, of a movie that had a black star in it. Because Jamie, uh, Jamie Foxx was already cast, um, and the tension with uh, him and Tommy Lee Jones was a good story because of the, the, the black and white, the racial aspect of this, was important to Sony at that point, to uh, Amazon at that point? Yeah, I, I think that's the reason. Uh, Jamie Foxx was not... <laughs> already cast by that time, but, but he took it on um, when Amazon approached him. Um, I, I, you know, the racial element in it is, is very powerful. It's not exactly why I set out to write. I don't set out to write things a pri- with an a priori idea of, of, of what it's going to say or what it's going to mean. Um, but Willie Gary was an absolutely fascinating character, and one of my complaints... I had two problems with the movie. The first one was the opening, where Jamie Foxx is preaching to a to a choir. Um, you know, it was okay, but I had a much better opening. <laughs> Willie Gary graduates with a law degree from Shaw University in North Carolina. drives down drives down to Florida, where he's rented an apartment by by mail. Uh, and he's gotten everything he needs to rent the apartment. It's, um, it, it's uh, you know, he's gotten, he's gotten instructions about the pool and, uh, and when the trash pick up and everything happens. He walks in there, and they, this is Rain Tree Apartments in, in Stewart, Florida. Still exists, I believe. And uh, he was told that there was no room. He, he, they didn't have a room, and Willie's angry with, with them. He, he, he asks them what... Um, you know, how can this be? I have all of this information for you, and now you're telling me there's no room? Uh, and he got, he called the manager out, and he said, look, I just graduated from law school, and I'm going to sue you to kingdom come. And he and, walked and, out. And he wasn't getting the apartment for himself and his family because he was black. Yes, exactly. I, I thought... I should have maybe that required stating, but uh, <laughs> or maybe it was too obvious. It was obvious, um, and the you know the long and short was that he walked out to his car where his wife and that where his wife Gloria was sitting and his two young children, and he was just uh, tense with rage. And then the manager came out, 
and said, oh, we do have an apartment for you. Anyhow, I thought that was like the first scene in the, in the story that I wrote. And it, it demonstrates perfectly. I mean, it's a perfect composite little scene of racism and, and what, what peop, black people experienced at that time in Florida in the South. And I wanted that to begin the movie rather than, than uh, Jamie Foxx, Willie Gary preaching to a choir. But that story does, in fact, come through. The big story does come through in The Burial, which is available on Amazon. We are speaking with Jonathan Haar, author of The Burial. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Local politics is what we do best. Listen to live election night coverage this Tuesday at 8, right after the polls close. Join WHMP's Bill Newman, Dan Torres, Sarah Robertson, and a host of special guests as we break down all the local elections as the results come in. Follow all the local elections right here on WHMP. Franklin County has a vibrant history of farming. At the Franklin County House of Correction, we bring that history to life with education and vocational programs around farming and gardening. Incarcerated men and women learn to work in active organic garden. Best of all, they harvest, they send home to help support and feed their families. This is Sheriff Chris Donnellan, and I can't think of better therapy than farming and feeding your family. That's the history of Franklin County, and we honor it at the Sheriff's Office every day. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. Let's experience fitness together. Hi, this is Jessica. And at Fitness Together, we offer personal trainers and customized workouts either in studio or virtually. Located in Northampton and Amherst, we're here to help you reach your goals, be it weight loss, recovery and rehab, improving health, or simply living well. Getting fit, you'll have the energy to do what you love. Visit us at Fitness Together, Amherst or Northampton and become a part of our community today. Fitness Together, your journey to wellness starts with us. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Northampton-based New York Times bestselling author Jonathan Haar, most famous, I think, for his work, his book, A Civil Action, and the author of The Burial, which was a piece, a lengthy piece in The New Yorker magazine that has been made into a movie available on Amazon Crime, starring Jamie Foxx and Tommy Lee Jones. I have seen it. It is just fabulous. I think you're a bit uh, self-deprecating about how good the movie is. Uh, Buzz, you had a question for Jonathan during the break. Share that with our listeners, I if you do, would, please. I do, better to ask this of? I always wonder whether authors, when they see accomplished, in this case, uh, actors like Tommy Lee Jones and, and Jamie Foxx um, play the characters that they've written, in this case, that you've written, did they play the character in the way that you imagined when you wrote it? Is, is, is it the same character that you yeah. wrote? Um, really, really, it, it was quite, it was, 
it was a good representation of both of the characters, with, without question. Um, you know, the earlier movie of Civil Action with John Travolta was a, also a good movie from Hollywood's standpoint, but um, the main character, who was played by John Travolta, really didn't represent the guy that uh, that uh, that I wrote about. James Lichtman. Yeah. In this case, uh, Jamie Foxx really embodies Willie Gary in an incredible way. And they actually got together. Willie is now in his uh, 80s. And um, they got together. Jamie Foxx was so, you know, so kind to him. And Willie was so excited this movie gets made <laughs> finally. <laughs> and Jamie Foxx. Uh, I'm sorry, and Jamie Foxx is playing him. I mean, that's pretty, yeah. must be pretty it was, exciting. It was very cool. To, uh, they had pictures taken of them together. and um, Jamie Foxx always wows me dramatically, and in terms of his comedy, I just think he's a spectacular well, entertainer. I think so, too. I agree. I, I, I'm, I'm betting for sure that he will get an Oscar nod for, for Best Actor. He may not win it, but, um, but I'm certain that he will. He'd also been had some sort of health scare. So there's not just his incredible talent, but also a kind of sympathy factor. You know, what's <laughs> glad you're back, Jamie. I hope nothing is that serious with seriously wrong with you. One aspect of both a civil action and the burial that uh, that was impressive to me was the way in which you take you as the author take these detours, go down these cul-de-sacs, come back, but keep the story moving. I mean, there are all these ups and downs and uh, uh, obstacles that happen in the course of a lengthy litigation. And I understand they may not be 100% accurate in terms of what happened in the courtroom, but in terms of telling the story of, oh my God, this case is about to totally fall apart now. I mean, there it is, and there's a lot of tension, and you do capture that, and yet keep the movie and the story going. Want yeah. to tell us the magic of that? I don't know exactly how that, how I do that, manage to do that. You know, the the idea is when I write is to keep people at the center of it, and what they're going through, their their travails, and and in getting to the end, find getting to the object that they uh, of the undertaking that they've they've agreed to do. Um, so if you keep the people the center of it, my friend Tracy Kidder said when I was struggling to write a civil action, he said, you know, you got to keep Schlickman, the main character, at the center of this. He can go off stage for a period of time, but the reader has to know that he will be back. And that's, uh, basically, I think that's the secret. Well, one aspect, I'll tell you, one of the scenes that, that moved me, particularly in The Burial, was the scene with uh, uh, the protagonist here, um, Willie Gary, and his wife, where he is, he's a superstar, black, amazing, but small-town lawyer, but amazingly accomplished and really dramatic and fabulously smart, and he really screwed up. And there is this confession to his wife, which was obviously really hard for him. And I thought that was an enormously dramatic scene. And I said, what could possibly come after this? And we don't have to give away the story that much, but... That, to me, was 
I thought, really moving. <laughs> and, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. I, I, I look forward to seeing the movie again. I saw it three months ago on a, on a, on a small screen that was sent to me by Amazon. With which, a seven-day expiration. Which expi <laughs> expired in seven days, and that's the only time I've seen it. <laughs> uh, I'll look at it again. <laughs> Another inside look I'd like to have, which is how about the way it was screenwritten? as opposed to what you had in mind. Yeah. Is the screenwriting the way um, you would want it to be? You know, I wasn't involved in that at all, and I never saw a copy of the screenplay. And there are things uh, in it that, that I would, another, apart from the beginning that I talked about earlier, I, I, which I think would have been very powerful, there's uh, Willie Gary walks in with his team to Jeremiah O'Keefe, the guy he's representing, office with a bunch of black lawyers, and he, he said it's an all-black firm and he's never represented a white guy. Even Willie, when he saw the movie, the, the real Willie, when he saw the movie, said, you know, that's just not true. We represented a lot of white people and we had white lawyers too. And so I think in a way it lacked a bit of nuance and that um, I found that a little upsetting. And Willie did too. <laughs> but it made for a certain kind of clarity in the in the tension in the racial tension sorry, that was sorry. going on because in fact there was tension between the flamboyant small town uh, black lawyer and the uh, white and white shoe law firm I mean that that's true that that came through in your yeah. your original he piece. He was such a small town he had offices in 16 states. Oh he, he was, did he did he started out as I'm right he started out as a small town personal injury lawyer. He did he started out as a small town Town lawyer doing everything from, you know, wills and and uh, mortgages and and that was all. I wrote at length about his early life, which was full of privation, um, and, and that didn't get into the movie, which is I'm upset about. Maybe although the, the, although that part of the story, he came from a really poor family and made it in a really big way. That does come through. But it did come through, but it did come through only through him telling about it. It wasn't shown. Yeah. And I think uh, Bobby Shriver is hoping that Amazon will do a series. Well, Jonathan Haar, my appetite is whetted. I, uh, I am really anxious to see this movie. It's, you, Buzz. It's, a, it's, it's a really good movie. You're, you're going to be really happy. Listeners, you're going to be really happy when you go to Amazon uh, Amazon Prime. Is that what it is? Amazon Prime. And uh, you're going to spend a couple of hours watching a really good film that is riveting and tells a quite extraordinary story, I think, in a, really, uh, in a way that really captures you. So Thank you. congratulations, Jonathan Hart. The movie is The Burial, available on Amazon Prime. Jonathan, of course, is a Northampton-based uh, New York Times best-selling author, and congratulations. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. We'll be right back. Give my stomach to Milwaukee if they run out of beer. Put my socks in a cedar box, just get on out of here. Venus to Milo can have my arms, look out, I've got your nose. Sell my heart to the junk man and give my love to Rose. But please don't bury me down in that cold, cold ground. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Good morning for WHMP News. I'm Jess Tyler. 
Polls are now open in 10 communities across Western Mass. Joan Holiday has more. Mayoral races will take place in Springfield, Greenfield, Chicopee, and Agawam. Voters in Amherst, Northampton, West Springfield, Holyoke, and East Hampton will pick candidates for city council and school committee and positions such as assessor and treasurer and personnel for other boards and commissions. Polls in most communities are open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m., with some exceptions, including Chicopee and Westfield, which close at 7 p.m., and Agawam, which runs from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Joan Holliday, WHMP News. A new climate panel in Hadley is causing some controversy. Climate science expert Susie Moser resigned, saying her service on the panel would be counterproductive due to a contentious relationship between herself and skeptics of the panel's work, according to the Gazette. This comes after a tense meeting in which Moser used profanity to defend comments she made during an earlier meeting. The committee was formed to look at potential actions the town could take to reduce its carbon footprint. Mountain Road Route 141 will have daytime closures tomorrow and Thursday, November 8th and 9th. The East Hampton DPW will be mowing and cleaning the drainage ditches alongside the road between 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. on both days. The road will be closed to all traffic and drivers should use alternate routes. Chance for a lingering shower early this morning. Otherwise, it's a partly to mostly sunny day. Breezy and a high of 62 to 66. Clearing continues tonight. Breezy overnight low of 30 to 36. Mostly sunny tomorrow, a high of 44 to 48. There could be some light freezing rain early Thursday morning. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Here's another remarkable success story from QC Kinetics. This one from Chad, who hurt his knee at the gym one day, and it just kept on hurting for months. From my high school football and wrestling days, I already had a little bit of damage in there, but this just sent it over the edge. Chad tried traditional treatments with no improvement. When he turned to the non-surgical regenerative treatments at QC Kinetics. It was really fascinating how they did their work, and the science behind it was very intriguing, and it works. Extracting the cure out of my own body blew my mind. It's like I'm brand new again. It was fantastic. That's because the QC Kinetics natural biologic treatments use your body's own healing power to restore damaged tissue in your hips, shoulders, back, and knees, providing long-lasting relief. Now I'm back at the gym. I'm 100% feeling great. If you're tired of suffering with pain from arthritis or injury, call QC Kinetics now for a free consultation. Call QC Kinetics 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Fitting in can really feel like it matters, especially when you're in high school. At the Hartsbrook School in Hadley, fitting in doesn't mean conforming. It just means a sense of belonging. If you're into sports or into writing, if you're into arts or into math, if you're into nature or into technology, you can thrive at the Hartsbrook School. And you can thrive academically while being an integral part of a community intentionally focused on belonging. Hartsbrook students take their learning out of the classroom, into nature, into the community, learning through experience, experiments, research, and group projects. Hartsbrook prepares a person to look the world in the eye and take responsibility for themselves and the community. Is Hartsbrook the right school for your teenager? For parents and caregivers of 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, there's a Discover Hartsbrook evening tonight. Also, today, a half-day visiting day for students. There's another visiting day for students December 6th and more in the new year. Register at Hartsbrook.org, the Hartsbrook School, on a 55-acre campus on Bay Road in Hadley. Of a trace, of doubt in my 
Well, I'd like to tell you that this is our half-faith segment with uh, Reverend Andrea Vazian, but in fact, it's not exactly our half-faith segment, but it is in fact a segment with the Reverend Andrea Vazian because we want to talk to her about the Truth School and a fundraising concert that is coming up very, very soon. Reverend, talk to us about the Truth School First, what it is, for those of our listeners who don't know, and then tell us a bit about the fundraising concert, if you would, please. I'm so happy to be here again, and I'm always happy to talk about the True School because it's this little gem. As Senator Joe Comerford says, the True School is a very necessary miracle. The True School is a national organization based in the Valley. We offer free movement-building Skills, classes, workshops, online, totally online. We're seven years old in January, pretty great. And the cover of every one of our catalogs says the very same thing. Sojourner True School for Social Change Leadership, we do one thing well. We teach movement-building skills class after class, week after week, month after month. We prepare social change leaders to win movement struggles. Tell us how you do that. Well, what we do is we have experts in the field who are themselves teachers, trainers, activists, teach these either 90-minute or two-hour classes online. Some of them are standalone classes, and some of them are series. So we may have right now, I'm taking a True School series class called The Stolen Beam, which is all on reparations, and a remarkable, remarkable class. So we do these movement-building classes, very interactive, experts in the field, and we help people connect with one another and even make community online. There are about 40 classes a semester, fall semester and spring. There is an interesting, not to call it a rule, but a protocol or a convention now at the Truth School for Social Change Leadership with regard to who the teachers are and how they work together. Tell our listeners about that, if you would, please. I love your investment in the in the school bill, seeing as you are like a founder with me. I came running to your house and said, I have this idea. And Michael Clare, my husband, thinks it'll work. And you said, yes, it will. Let's name it. Um, and I love that you are part of our history and integral to that. The True School, for the first two years of our seven years, hired wonderful trainers to teach for us. And back then, it was in person in Greenfield, Northampton, East Hampton, Holyoke, and Springfield. But after two years, the board got together and thought, hmm, we have trainers of color and white trainers, and that's just great, but why don't we do more? And the board came up with the idea that we would only hire trainers of color or biracial pairs. So white people can still train for us, but they must be in a biracial pair. So every single true school class in the last five years, after two years of our starting Every single class has had a person of color or a biracial pair up front teaching and leading. It's changed who we touch. It's changed how we teach. It's changed the school profoundly, all for the better. I want to get to this uh, concert and the benefit concert. But first, can you tell us, please, who takes the classes? Who is the audience? Who are the participants? Completely great question. 
We've had people in their teens. We often have people in their 80s. It's everybody in between. We used to, when we were in person, have people from Western Massachusetts, Albany, Brattleboro, sometimes Cambridge, sometimes Hartford. Now that we're totally online, it's activists or people who want to be more active in movement building um, activities in their communities, and we're now nationwide. So I looked at a recent, I've been looking at rosters of people who register for our class, and a third of the people who register from our class are outside New England. So it's people signing up from Chicago and Toronto and Pasadena and, and uh, Atlanta. And we've also had people taking our classes from 16 countries. So we really are a national and slightly international organization, but we're definitely national and we now have national trainers. So we have trainers in D.C. and Berkeley and Austin. And so we're a national organization. Give us, if you would, please, the titles of a few of the courses so we can have a greater sense of what they are. So there is a class this Saturday, everyone, taught by Tahira Amatul Wadud. It's called Political Organizing, Concrete Guidance on Working for Candidates and Working on Campaigns. Also on uh, next Tuesday is Movement Building on the, and the Arts with wonderful Letty Bueno from Austin. She is fabulous. I've taken that class. It is, it is fabulous. We also have coming up in December, everyone, on the solstice, we have circle practice to mark the winter solstice with Strong Oak. And Strong Oak does a beautiful job every winter solstice and every equinox leading a class where there is a circle practice that goes very deep and is very beautiful. Tell us about the concert. Truth School Fundraising Concert, November 10th, please. Well, I'm jumping out of my skin because I'm so excited. For the first time in our seven years, we're having a fundraising concert event. It is November 10th, 7 p.m. at the Edwards Church. It features Evelyn Harris, Marcia Gomes, Sasha Clarivazian, Jeff Olmsted, who is here in the studio with me, and me. Why I said I would sing again in public is unclear, but I did. <laughs> um, <laughs> we Everybody's doing a short set. It is a complete delight that these friends and family members have said that they will give their time to a school they love. Marcia is a trainer, uh, Evelyn is a trainer. Jeff is my complete pal and buddy and delight, and he is here. And the welcome is by Senator Joe Comerford. The MC is a Mihan Matias. It's going to be a night of beautiful singing and great spirit. Um, I am doing three songs, and for my third song, I am bringing a, a choir member from my church, which is the Alden Baptist Church in Springfield. I'm bringing uh, Minister Kevin Giles up to sing with me. That's pretty fabulous. Um, I'm excited about that. And so it's going to be great. Let me repeat, it's Friday night at 7 at the Edwards Church. Where and how do we get tickets? There are no tickets. So glad you asked that. It's a fundraising concert, and we are going to have people with baskets. We actually got a QR code. I'm feeling so, you know, contemporary. I don't even know what QR codes are, but somebody knew. Somebody knew and got one, and they've been printed. And, and you have one of those things yes, now. Whatever have, what a QR code is, you have one. 
this QR code, apparently people are very excited about it. I'm <laughs> pretending I am. I say things like, yeah, good, the QR code. So we have that, which has been printed on car stock. We are accepting cash, change, checks, QR code, whatever that does. And uh, so there are no tickets. You just come. We're hoping for a full house. So everybody come out and support the True School. Again, where and when? I love you. It is Friday night. Shh, Michael's listening. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. It's Friday night at the Edwards Church at 7 p.m. Come early. Give me a hug. I'll need one. And uh, we're very excited about it. It sounds like a fabulous fundraiser for a fabulous institution. Oh, Buzz, bless you. Thank you. Now, do you love me, too? Yeah, I love you, too. You know I do. How many years I've loved you, too. Okay, before this gets really awkward, <laughs> let me announce this. We are going to come back, and we're going to hear. What are we going to hear in the studio live? We're going to hear a hymn that I wrote years ago. It's short and sweet. I'll do one verse of it. I really wrote a hymn. I mean, I am a pastor, and it's, it's kind of tender. Yeah. And we have an accompanist here? We have... Jeff Olmsted here. Let me just say before the break, yes, we're giving him an applause. Let me say, do I have a moment to just say, Jeff is a remarkable musician. He's a composer. He's a choral director. He's the director of Valley Jazz Voices. He's a church musician and was at my side for, ten, for five years while I was the senior pastor at the Haydenville Congregational Church, and Jeff was our minister of music. And he is a Jonathan Edwards scholar. He says Jonathan Edwards nerd. And he's written an opera about Jonathan Edwards, which will be performed in the future in the Valley, details to follow. So he is my beloved friend, and he's going to be at the piano for the entirety of the concert, supporting the musicians in different combinations. And despite all those insignificant achievements, he will be playing a WHMP Talk to Talk right after just this. A few, just a few minutes. We'll be right back. Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday bread euphoria? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. At the Northampton Williamsburg line, there's something in the air. That sourdough crust pizza. Those croissants. Smell that bread. The baguettes. That New York rye. It's euphoria. Bread euphoria. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that, no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. 
Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800-insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586 1000. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground up, flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op. Wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. A fundraising concert for which there is no admission. Reverend Andrew Vazian, tell us one more time and then introduce what we are going to hear next. The concert is to support the True School, the uh, Sojourner True School for Social Change Leadership. It's our first ever fundraising concert this Friday night at 7 p.m. It's at the Edwards Church. Come hear the welcome by Senator Joe Comerford and then hear the music by Evelyn Harris, Marcia Gomes, Sasha Claire Avazian, Jeff Olmsted, and even me. And the cost for the ticket is? Zero, free, and there will be... Uh, Baskets for donations, which we welcome. The song I'm going to share, and my buddies here asked Jeff and me to bring a keyboard, which Jeff did faithfully. This is a little hymn that I wrote a number of years ago. Oh, bless this day With friends all gathered near And open up our hearts So that we may hear The whispers from the heavens The cries of those in pain The dreams that move us forward And our own heart beats again Oh, bless this day our hearts are open wide a warm wind blows around us good friends are at our side we're thankful for the blessings in each and every day we know that what we keep in life is what we give away a little taste of the hymn you wrote that. I wrote that. That's beautiful. That, well, that's, you're very kind. You're very kind. And we have another one. And this one is a lullaby and a love song. This is called Secrets That Mothers Tell Babies. I wrote this when my son, now 35, was in my arms. I was, an, I was an older mother. I'm an older mother, and I had him late in life. And I used to sit in the living room with him in the night and rock him, this makes me cry, and rock him in a rocking chair and sing to him and talk to him. And then I realized that mothers tell babies secrets in the dead of night. And I wrote this song. Now, my son will be there at this concert. 
because he himself is a very accomplished musician. He is a very accomplished musician. He teaches music at a public high school in Springfield called Rise Prep Academy. He also has been in very famous bands. He lives locally. He's gigging out all the time. He was in Austin, Texas, in the music scene for about 10 years, and he will be performing right after me. So this is the first time I will ever sing this song publicly with my son in the room. So, you know, if everyone could lift a prayer that I can get through this, that would be, like, really helpful, really helpful. I'm not going to look at him, but um, here we go. Well, there are secrets mothers tell babies, secrets that babies coo back. Some are about all the light in your eyes. Some are about how our love never dies. There are secrets mothers tell babies, secrets that deep in the night. While rocking you slow and whispering low and holding you close to me tight. That's a taste of that little lullaby. Wow. Wow. Do you usually write uh, for a musical accompaniment? I know you're a poet and an accomplished poet. Which comes first, the music or the words? Years ago, and Bill, you'll remember this because I've known you so long. Years ago, I used to play guitar, and I used to play out in the 80s locally at the Iron Horse a number of times and a number of other venues. Then I realized that I'm so Armenian, and I use my hands so much that I couldn't use my hands like I'm doing right now in the studio and strum my guitar. So I got feedback actually after a song at the horse that I had stopped playing and was motioning. And people were like, that's a bad idea, Andrea. That really doesn't work. And then the accompaniment drops out and you get off key and your hands are flying around. So I decided it was my hands or my guitar. And I was never really great at the guitar, although my son is fabulous. But so I dropped the guitar, and I've been playing with accompanists ever since. And Jeff has accompanied me in singing. We've done First Night w with our church, and we've done a number of things together. Well, when Andrea is preaching, she will often... When Andrea is preaching, she will sometimes like get right up in the middle aisle uh, and just start singing. So yes. I, I got used to being ready for, like, trying to figure out, like, what key is she in? <laughs> And the wonderful thing is that Jeff and I were at the Haydenville Church and helped grow it together over a number of years, and we worked so closely together, and he is such a fine, accomplished musician and such a dear friend that I would go into the middle aisle, raise my Armenian hands, and look at Jeff and start one of our chancer songs, and he would just nod and fill in and then harmonize, and then and I'd be up there. And so we were an, an incredible team. But yes, he's right. I often burst into song at, um, <laughs> at <laughs> church. <laughs> And what was that word? What song? A chancer song? 
we we had a number of four line chants that we used to do all the time, and so I would start one of those. And instead of smirking and rolling his eyes, Jeff would just nod and give me a thumbs up, and then join in somehow perfectly, right tempo, right key, and harmonize. So he's kind of a miracle worker. Reverend, we were a heck Reverend of a team. Avakian, I'd just like to go back. We only have a couple of minutes, but I'd like to talk about the leadership aspiration that's involved in the True School. You're not just trying to talk about social justice. You're trying to teach people about leadership. Could you talk about that a little bit? Great. You know what we do is every class says, how will you use this? How can you step forward? How can you take what's been shared and put it into practice and manifest it in your community. We're not in Phoenix. Many of the trainers, many of the people on this Zoom are not there in Toronto. How will you use it in your community? And we also don't assume that everyone involved in social change movements is charismatic, out there, likes to be up front, likes to go to city council and have the mic. We have a very, very popular class called Movement Building and Activism for Introverts and Sensitive, Highly Sensitive People. And that remarkable class gets like 50 or 60 people who say, I'm too shy to take the mic at city council. But what I'm hearing, I know I can use in other ways. Reverend Andrew Vazian, one more time, please tell us about the Truth School fundraising concert, when, where, and who. Yay! It is on Friday night at 7. It is at Edwards Church. There's a lineup of wonderful folks. It will be spirited. It will be beautiful. Please join us. No cost. Please make a donation when you're in there. Thank you so very much, Reverend Andrea Vazian and Jeff Olmsted. Just a pleasure to hear you and see you. Love and blessings, simple kindness. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. I didn't think it was possible for me to be an alcoholic. I was 24 with a good career. I thought that alcoholism only happened to middle-aged men and celebrities. I thought something else was making me sick, shaky, and afraid to face people. Then I found AA and discovered it wasn't something else. It was alcohol. AA helped me find a new life. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit Western Map. Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And I am very excited about a very special guest to me, um, and I think to anybody who knows him who is a licensed uh, social worker who's taught at Smith in that prestigious uh, program uh, for social work, clinical social work, and also teaches at MCLA and at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, it is Carter Carter, a neighbor of mine from Ashfield, and somebody that I'm very pleased to know. Okay. Carter Carter, uh, I can't resist. How do you have the same first name and last name? Probably a question you've never been asked before. I'd like you to meet Bill or, Bill, you know, my I, co-host. I, 
I, I get the question approximately a dozen times an hour. Um, so the short version is, I was born Carter Duarte. Duarte is my father's last name, and Carter is my mother's last name. So that way they wouldn't need to hyphenate it. And then my dad was pretty divorceable. So we all went back to using my mom's last name when, when we were little. Uh, but the, the funny thing about being named Carter Carter is that it's a, it's a kind of, it's a very waspy name and it winds up doing a lot to occlude from view my actual heritage, which is, uh, you know, my maternal grandmother is Jewish. Uh, her family comes from Ukraine originally. Uh, my mom's adopted. So her biological family is from Afghanistan. Um, you know, my father, uh, his family's from the Azores in Portugal. Uh, so I have, you know, Jewish, Muslim, every version of Christian heritage, uh, and I'm married to a uh, wonderful woman who is uh, a dual uh, Israeli and U.S. citizen. And you live in Asheville. I do. I live in Asheville, yeah. <laughs> okay. He's How could uh, we leave that out? Well, he does <laughs> live in Asheville, the center of the universe, but he, I think he was raised in Brookline, a predominantly Jewish community, and his mm -hmm. friends used to call it Baruchline, which is not yes, quite right, but... Um, you wrote a piece, Carter, which uh, resulted in me inviting you to return to the airways with us um, because you have you are you're a riveting guest um, and a riveting person to have conversations with about important matters. And the piece that you wrote is called "Thanksgiving Calls to Mind: Colonialism in Both Israel and the United States." I'd love for you to share with listeners. Uh, what your thesis is in that piece. And where was that piece published? In the Ashfield News. Okay. Uh, to which, by the way, any listener is welcome to subscribe. Um, we, would, we, would love, we would love your money. Um, yeah, the, the, the general idea of this piece is, um, you know, I write a monthly newspaper column, and so November is generally, the expectation is that it's Thanksgiving. Um, uh, but, but writing this month obviously, you know, fell on the heels of everything that's been happening in Gaza, and what I was trying to reflect on was essentially, um, what does it mean to be an anti-Zionist Jew living in the United States, which is itself a settler colony, right? Uh, what does it mean to be kind of multiply implicated uh, in these colonial projects um, as someone who is Jewish? Um, and, and so, uh, essentially, what I was trying to put out there was a. Uh, I, th I think what I said was there are as many ways to be Jewish as there are Jewish people in the world, right? And something that uh, it, it would be easy to lose sight of in this moment is uh, the fact that there's a robust Jewish tradition going back as long as there's been such a thing as Zionism of uh, critique and opposition to Zionism. That's very much a part of my you know family history. Um, you know, the, some of the most uh, noteworthy and well-respected uh, Jewish people in the world have been uh, notably anti-Zionist. You can find in Sigmund Freud's own letters uh, a correspondence between him and some of the original kind of 19th century Zionists where they were asking him to publicly support their cause and he vociferously said no uh, and made a decidedly psychoanalytic argument for why he thought that this was a, a misguided and uh, unethical project as originally conceived and in the way that it ultimately came to be executed. Um, and so I'm, I'm trying to think about what does it mean to be the kind of person for whom the Jewish state presumes to speak, but also what does it mean to be someone who is living in unceded territory, right? Who is living in a colony, who's living in a house that was built by the people who who stole this land from from native people. It's particularly a poignant thesis that you weave in in your piece in the Ashfield News, Carter. Um, because you're, you, you, I think you, I'm always having trouble 
well, since October 7th, uh, expressing the horror that was October 7th, my feelings about that as someone who's raised Jewish. And at the same time, my horror at seeing what's happening in Gaza. It's a, it's a very difficult articulation for me to form and to get out there because I'm so conflicted, but I think you nail it. So why don't you talk about it from the perspective of someone who's, uh, who's both Jewish and who has both Judaism and, and Islam in your household? You know, what, one of the things that I'm acutely aware of is it, how dangerous it feels to talk about things right now. Um, and, you know, I'm on the radio speaking extemporaneously, and it's very anxiety-making to, to think about putting a foot wrong. Um, but also, you know, the, you got <laughs> these are the moments when you're supposed to, to speak your mind and try to be an ethical person, right? Which I think is an, an essential part of the Jewish tradition, um, is not, not being afraid to say the things that are uncomfortable. Um, f from my perspective, uh, I'm a trauma therapist. Right. Um, that's my that's my professional work. Um, and what I know as a trauma therapist is that uh, when you relentlessly put people in degrading, humiliating conditions uh, where uh, they're not able to feel like uh, capable parents to their children, people who keep their children safe, where they're not able to feel like uh, they have any meaningful voice in the conditions that shape their lives. Uh, when when you degrade and frighten and traumatize people relentlessly and give them no options, um, that is a highly combustible environment that you're creating, right? And uh, one of the predictable ways in which people respond to that kind of persistent humiliation and, and the induction of helplessness is that they lash out violently, right? Or they uh, become more, sympath more sympathetic to people who might lash out violently. We know from public polling uh, that support for Hamas is very low in among Gazans. Um, the level of support for Hamas there is about comparable to the ongoing level of support for Trump in the United States. Uh, so this is not a majoritarian position, uh, support for Hamas, but we can, if we can look at the United States and understand the ways in which um, hollowing out of particular communities uh, led to led some minoritarian subset of those communities to wish to lash out, um, if, if we can have compassion for that, even if we don't morally approve of the form it takes, um, I see absolutely no reason that we could not extend that same grace and empathy to any Palestinian person, even Palestinian folks who are sympathetic to Hamas. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, I think it's a deeply abusive thing to do to put people in these degrading, helpless positions. It's a kind of politics of why are you hitting yourself? And it's something that we as Jewish people know intimately from our history, right? We know what it is to be put into a walled ghetto, right? And to, you know, be be put in this pressure cooker and invited to turn against each other and collaborate with the people who are oppressing and humiliating us. We know about this. We, sh we of all people in the world should know better than to do this to other people. Uh, and, and yet, um, again, as a trauma therapist, I can tell you, uh, we have what Freud called a repetition compulsion. We have a tendency to reenact and recreate our own traumas. We have a tendency to do uh, what psychoanalysts call identification with the aggressor. You know, if you really believe that there's in the world, there are fundamentally only people who get punched and people who punch, 
you want to be either the person punching or you want to be standing behind that person. You don't want to be the person who gets punched. Um, and, and so it, it's an enormously agonizing thing as a, as a Jewish person right now to see um, th the most ignominious traumas that were ever inflicted on us being inflicted on so many Palestinians by the Jewish state, allegedly on my behalf. Um, and I think that's why you see so many leftist Jews right now saying, not in my name, not on my behalf, right? Never again means never again for anyone. Um, it, we of all people should know this is wrong. So Carter J. Carter, I would like to go back to something you just said, mm -hmm. which is you described yourself as an anti-Zionist. There is mm -hmm. a lot of dispute now about what is meant by uh, from the river to the sea. And when you mm -hmm. describe yourself as an anti-Zionist, are you saying that the state of Israel shouldn't exist? Oh, you're really trying to get me fired, huh? Um, okay, <laughs> never mind. You, you can skip, you can no, skip the okay, question. Okay. But it... listen, listen, let's be brave, okay? Like, let's be a democracy and have a conversation and not be frightened. He, here's what I believe. Um, I'm an anarchist. I do not automatically believe that any state has a right to exist in any particular form. That's a universal proposition in my politics, right? Anarchism is an anti-statist way of seeing the world. Um, if you are a person who is reflexively suspicious of colonialism, part of what you're suspicious of is the imposition of the structure of a state on a territory and a people that may traditionally have gotten on just fine without one. Prior to the colonization of the United States, we didn't have states. We had confederations and, and nations and tribal communities and all kinds of different ways of organizing social life that were not within the statist structures. So generally speaking, do I think any state has a right to exist? Not automatically, no. Um, but more to the point, um, I certainly don't think that fascist states have a right to exist as fascist states, right? I do not think that reactionary authoritarian state structures that uh, exert totalitarian control over the lives of minorities for the benefit of an empowered majority, I don't believe that those states have a right to exist in that form that extends to the United States and Saudi Arabia and Iran and Israel, among many other places in the world. And so I think that there's a kind of rhetorical trap that is laid by people who set the stakes of the debate as well, do you think Israel has a right to exist? I don't think that that's the right question. You know, as a Jewish person who is anti-fascist in my politics to my core because fascists want to murder me um <laughs> uh, uh, i think that jews and all sorts of other minoritized people in the world are put in enormous danger by the the kind of right by fiat of fascist states to exist and to to keep being fascist psychotherapist carter carter when we began this conversation you pointed out that you wrote this piece in the ashfield news about colonialism um because it's November, you have a monthly column, and you thought that Thanksgiving is, a rel is, a, is an important time to articulate this thesis about colonialism with respect to both the U.S. and Israel. Why is Thanksgiving an appropriate time to raise this issue? Um, this is a, a holiday where we memorialize, we, those of us who have settler heritage, which I do, um, memorialize our colonization of this place. Uh, and we often do so by telling a enormously historically inaccurate story about the state of relations between 
uh, early settlers and the the indigenous Native Americans who were who were already here. Um, something I guess I wish for is that, um, you know, as a therapist, part of my job is to help people contend with the fact that they come from a complicated lineage and a set of complicated histories that make them who they are now, and that we're none of us are served by trying to sell or or tell ourselves a a simple version of that story in which you know we're simply the good guy or it was it wasn't that complicated or uh in in which bad things weren't done to others to make our easier lives you know uh, we're all what um uh, i forget the name of the the person who wrote this book but we're all what uh, this one guy calls implicated subjects you know uh, anybody who who lives here right now is participating in colonialism in some way uh and and may only have a kind of narrow range of choice about about that right they may not have a different option right um you know anybody living in any settler colony anywhere in the world it's not like they just necessarily have somewhere else to go right that's ridiculous um but that we're we're here now and that that makes a moral demand on us to at minimum not tell ourselves a self-indulgent simplifying story in which we are not the are we're not the beneficiaries of of stolen blood and treasure right that we're not the our easier lives are not the product of things that were taken by force from others um and and i think that that also is that is the challenging thing as a, as a jewish person right now right the, is the israeli state their their fundamental argument is that they need to take military action such as the ones they're taking in gaza they need to undertake genocide in order to uh maintain territory that is safe for me to be a citizen if i so choose right if i were to make aliyah if my children were to make aliyah like making aliyah means uh seeking israeli citizenship as a jew um that they're that they're doing this for me and I don't want them to do it for me. I don't wow. want them to do it for my children. That is a that seems to me the perfect uh, place to take a a break and allow that to percolate. We're talking to Carter Carter. We'll continue this conversation right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to three Eastern time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to three Eastern time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. When it comes to investing, we're taught the higher the risk, the better the reward. Francis Ram, the money doctor, says it isn't necessarily true. We need to remember that with risk comes the potential for losses, and making up losses can set us back or worse, delay our retirement. You've heard the testimonials for years about how her patented program helps people become 100% debt-free, far ahead of schedule. But did you know that for more than 35 years, Dr. Ram has been helping people retire well without 
without unnecessary risk? Dr. Ram says most people mistakenly accept that in order to earn attractive interest rates, they must tolerate risk and that choosing safety means settling for lackluster returns. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can earn competitive rates and minimize taxes without risking a single dollar of your hard-earned savings. Contact the money doctor at Hug Your Money for a free consultation. Call 413-773-3333 or visit HugYourMoney.com. Hi, I'm Martha Stewart. Every year, more than 4 million pets enter shelters here in the United States. My friends at American Humane have been helping animals since 1877. The goal is to ensure that pets have a safe shelter, especially during natural disasters. Adopting a shelter pet allows shelters to help more animals awaiting care. Please consider adopting today and take some time to learn more about American Humane's other work at AmericanHumane.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are continuing our conversation with with, uh, psychotherapist Carter Carter. And Bill, during the break, we were talking about uh, a question which you were raising, um, which plagues me, which is how do you talk about um, trying to bridge these impossible differences uh, while Hamas is, and others, Iran and others, are saying that Israel, the state of Israel, has no right to exist. Um, uh, your thoughts about that, Bill, and then I want to talk to Carter about any thoughts he might have. Well, I, I would love to get uh, Carter's uh, view of this because Hamas's position is we want to kill every Jew and we want to destroy the state of Israel, and they engaged in a terrorist attack which murdered 1,400 people, uh, and they have an entire political and uh, social justification saying this was the right thing to do. We stand by it. Um, what's Israel supposed to do or what's the response? You're a trauma expert. There's trauma. There's plenty of trauma for everyone. But what do you think the response is supposed to be? Um, I might answer your question a little bit diagonally. Um my sense is that if we want to prevent explosions of violence, we have a responsibility to try to create on the ground conditions that don't conduce to such violence, right? That, listen, as a Jewish person, do I want there to be organizations out there in the world that want to murder Jewish people? No. <laughs> but my sense of how we accomplish that is by not propagating conditions on the ground that conduce to people being so humiliated that they wish to lash out violently. Like, let me give you another example of this while we're wading into provocations. Um, One of my areas of expertise is school shootings, right? I did my dissertation about the Columbine school shooting. I have articles forthcoming about other uh, school shootings across the United States. That's uh, that's a domestic uh, form of mass violence and political violence with which I'm intimately familiar. I am not at all convinced that any of the ideas currently in circulation for minimizing or preventing school shootings will ultimately have the desired effect because what I don't think that they're targeting is the fact that um, people who are systematically humiliated and devalued by coercive institutions are liable to reach for supremacist discriminatory politics and weapons as a way of responding to their their sense of humiliation 
and to to punish the institutions that they experienced as coercing and traumatizing and, and making their lives impossible, right? So to my mind, uh, these issues are are parallel, right? And my sense is that if you want to reduce that sort of violence, you have to stop organizing society in such a way where you put people inside of an open air prison and make it so that basically none of them can have jobs and those of them that can have jobs need to have special permits that allow them to leave of which there's only a few thousand um, and they aren't going to make enough money and they're never going to be in a labor union um, and they're and 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 right you cannot do that to people and expect that some of them will not retaliate it's not psychologically rational that does not make the retaliation morally sound right but I, I suppose i would also ask the question if we listen i'm a settler colonist in the united states right and the the indigenous people who lived where i lived did not consent to me being here right i'm occupying this place and i, I think a lot lately about the the kinds of violence that occurred in the united states in the early colonial period you know 75 to 100 years after the first settlers arrived and how we saw in those contexts violence that in many ways resembled what we're seeing right now right settlers being murdered quote unquote men women and children right and like that's ghastly right i also think that if it would be hard for a lot of honest Americans to look at that kind of violence and say the Native Americans shouldn't have done that in the context and the choices they were being given, right? But would I wanted, have wanted to be subjected to that? Would I want my children to be subjected to that? No. Can I imagine myself becoming enormously vengeful if I lived through something like that? Yes, of course I can imagine that. But, but we have an ethical responsibility to look to root causes right and the you know the psychological and sociological literatures on violence are clear on this mass political violence like that it, when you encourage broad-based democratic participation when you give people rights when you cultivate an environment of equality and mutual respect people do not generally do things of this nature right if you look you know as a parallel with the literature on school shootings what the data seem to suggest is that the best Thing you can do to to make school shootings less likely in your school is is uh, cultivate restorative justice programs and treat students with enough respect and autonomy that they don't feel humiliated by you. Um, I, I I cannot imagine a scenario in which people. And again, I'm speaking as a Jewish person who does not want to be targeted or harassed or murdered or subjected to anti-Semitism, right? I cannot imagine a world in which I am likely to be free of that. That is not also a world in which Palestinians have fundamentally equal rights and an opportunity for dignity and genuine citizenship and autonomy. And I listen, I, I'm a psychologist, right? I would defer to people whose work is is more squarely in politics to to talk about the details of how you accomplish that but how can we expect people who are fundamentally disenfranchised to not seek their franchise by any means necessary i i, I don't know what i would do but i would i would imagine that i would 
not be able to stand it either if I were in their position. Well, um, you've given us so much to think about in this uh, situation, which we already have so much to think about. I really appreciate your perspective. I think it's really important one and valuable um, to me. Uh, I'm, I know I'm going to be... Uh, I know you've given me something to think about for the rest of this week. Every time I look at, I'm looking at Al Jazeera right now, and we've just passed a grisly 10,000 dead point in Gaza, um, and they're estimating that about 45 percent of them are under the age of 10 years old. It's it's just so horrible, and that's we still have these hostages. We still have this, as Bill was saying, this horrific number of people that were um, killed, and some slaughtered in dreadful ways. It's it's an in seemingly intractable thinking, uh, thing that's going on, and uh, it's only by uh, people raising the kind of questions you are about the institutional explanations for how we got here um, that we're going to change minds, because it isn't going to happen soon, and it isn't going to happen easily. Carter, Carter, thank you so much. Uh, this won't be the last time I ask you to appear on the show and talk about this from your perspective. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, re I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be with you. It's a pleasure, and thank you for your work. We will be right back with Senator Paul Mark right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Good morning for WHMP News. I'm Jess Tyler. Polls are now open in 10 communities across Western Mass. Joan Holiday has more. Mayoral races will take place in Springfield, Greenfield, Chicopee, and Agawam. Voters in Amherst, Northampton, West Springfield, Holyoke, and East Hampton will pick candidates for city council and school committee and positions such as assessor and treasurer and personnel for other boards and commissions. Polls in most communities are open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m., with some exceptions, including Chicopee and Westfield, which close at 7 p.m., and Agawam, which runs from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Joan Holliday, WHMP News. A new climate panel in Hadley is causing some controversy. Climate science expert Susie Moser resigned, saying her service on the panel would be counterproductive due to a contentious relationship between herself and skeptics of the panel's work, according to the Gazette. This comes after a tense meeting in which Moser used profanity to defend comments she made during an earlier meeting. The committee was formed to look at potential actions the town could take to reduce its carbon footprint. Mountain Road, Route 141, will have daytime closures tomorrow and Thursday, November 8th and 9th. The East Hampton DPW will be mowing and cleaning the drainage ditches alongside the road between 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. on both days. The road will be closed to all traffic and drivers should use alternate routes. Chance for a lingering shower early this morning. Otherwise, it's a partly to mostly sunny day, breezy and a high of 62 to 66. Clearing continues tonight, breezy overnight low of 30 to 36. Mostly sunny tomorrow, a high of 44 to 48. There could be some light freezing rain early Thursday morning. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka. Celebrate the Valley's proud Polish heritage with Polka Carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning Polka Carousel to the airwaves of the Valley. Playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits. Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled thoughtful memorial care. It's Polka Carousel, WHMP. 
You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. When you're going through a tough time and need to talk with a mental health care provider as soon as possible, walk into ServiceNet's clinic at 50 Pleasant Street in downtown Northampton any Wednesday between 10 and 2. We'll see you right away. Or call ServiceNet anytime to make an appointment. Talk therapy, medication management, and other specialized treatments. ServiceNet's team works together to provide the care you need all in one place. Walk in Wednesdays 10 to 2 or call anytime. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. We are so lucky we have a monthly visit with uh, the state senator who has the largest uh, geographic uh, constituency uh, of any senator, I think, in the history of Massachusetts, I've been told, but certainly now it is Senator Paul Mark, my senator. Hello, Senator. Hello, my favorite constituent. <laughs> <laughs> so where are you right now? I, uh, I'm at one of the rest areas on my way towards uh, Worcester. I, uh, I'm, I'm going out to help in the special election for the state Senate, Jonathan Zlotnick is, is running against uh, another, he's a state rep, another state rep, uh, Peter Durant. And uh, this is a vacancy that was created when Senator Ann Gobi, former Senator Ann Gobi, was appointed to be the rural affairs commissioner. So, yeah. You're always on, you're always on the move because you, you have so much distance that you, ha- you have to cover. Today is election day for so many municipalities, like the one you just described. Um, our... We don't have to remind listeners our the headline after headline after headline is involving <clears throat> the state of our democracy. <clears throat> is it in perils, both nationally and locally? So as someone who actually runs for office, a politician, a senator, can you talk about what Election Day means to you and the message that you want to get across to voters and potential voters? Yeah, it's, it's actually... Um I think you'll appreciate this buzz. Yesterday, I was teaching American Civil Liberties at GCC, which I am uh, your successor in that. And I had Chris Capucci, who used to be my legislative aide and has since gone on to become a lawyer and and, uh, uh, an ADA in the Hamden County District Attorney's Office. And he was talking about how criminal law is a substitute for like personal retribution, personal vendetta, that we, we trust the system to take care of these things. And then I, it made me comment that, yeah, it's very similar to politics, that politics is a, is a substitute for having war to decide how we, how we are governed and who's going to be our leaders. We, we, instead, of, instead of going out and fighting a battle like they did for however many hundreds of thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, whatever it might have been, um, instead now 
we trust, we put our trust in the system that we're going to campaign, we're going to vigorously state our positions, and in some cases, vigorously talk about our opponents' positions. And at the end of the day, we're going to gather in a polling place, we're going to use a secret ballot, and the votes we cast are going to be counted, and that is how we are going to know who is going to be the leaders for the next two or four or six years, depending on the office that you're voting for. And so in, in some ways, the fact that this system that is getting close to 250 years old, um, and in Massachusetts is actually much, much older than that, still works as well as it does, is amazing, is a testament to the strength of democracy, um, certainly in Massachusetts. When you see some of the stuff that has been going on nationally, and that's, I think, what was so scary about the 20. 20 election and, and the uh, January 6, 2021 events was that instead of the results that are a substitute for war, that are a substitute for violence, that are a substitute for bloodshed, instead of those results being accepted, there was actually, uh, for what I think is the first time in our country's history, um, a way to use, a, a, a choice to use violence to subvert the democratic process. And so that was worrying. For the most part, I think we've recovered well and the safeguards in the system have worked. But when you talk about today, Election Day, and specifically the municipal elections, which is where people probably have like the most direct form of democracy, um, when you have low turnout, that can, be, that can be frustrating when people only pay attention to maybe the most glamorous races, <laughs> if that makes sense. Right. You know, I've heard it said famously, Tip O'Neill, the Speaker of the House, Massachusetts representative to Congress, he, he famously said that all politics are local. But lately, with social media um, uh, and a lot of other potential explanations, people have said all politics is now national, and it's filtering down to the local. What do you say about that? I, I think that's partly correct. I, I think national politics drives turnout, national issues drive turnout, but I think it's 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 not as true as people maybe realize and, and this is why. Um, when I'm on when I'm on many political or, or I shouldn't say political, but when, when I'm on a show like this, we often talk about statewide issues. Um, in some places like on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter or whatever today, I see a lot of people only talking about the national stuff. Now Twice a month, I do an office hours in a different town in the district that is just an open forum, completely open town hall forum, and I always bring the local representative with me. I'll just interrupt and, just to say to listeners that if you don't know, Senator Polmark has, what, 57 municipalities he represents? Seven. Is that right? Yeah, yeah exactly, 57. So, so, so it's always a challenge for you to, to go to where your constituents are and, and have a presence in yeah. those towns. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and with a series of like recurring monthly office hours, and then with these two town hall forums I do every month, um, the plan is with with fifty seven towns we do we'll we'll hit every community in an open forum at least once per term. And I, I as I like to say to people when I do them, um, I would love to see everybody more often. But if I went to one town a week, I still couldn't get to you all in a year. So like we're doing the best we can. But but the politics, the issues that come up at those meetings are not the national issues. They're actually very local issues. We had uh, Cummington and Lanesboro in the last two weeks. And in both Cummington and Lanesboro, very different communities, you know, relatively close to each other, um, but different in terms of population, different counties. 
No, the issues weren't. I thought people were going to talk about the gun bill from the House. I thought people were going to talk about um, the national election. And instead, it's talking about money that needs to come for ambulances, money that needs to come for schools, uh, very specific projects, building projects in Lanesboro and revitalization of of the old uh, Berkshire Trail Elementary School in Cummington. So I don't know if that's a reflection of the person that would take time on a Saturday morning to come to a forum with their senator and representative is a person that is very knowledgeable about local politics and the person that is spending time, you know, looking at Instagram about what did Trump do today or what did Biden do today, uh, maybe is actually a little less knowledgeable. I think I've read that, that people that watch certain news channels feel that they're very knowledgeable, but it turns out when, like, given a quiz, they actually know very little. <laughs> Has anyone else heard that? Yeah, the news silo question. We talk about yeah. that with uh, Josh Silver a lot on this show, actually. Mm-hmm. Senator, yeah, like the echo chamber. Yes, exactly. Senator Mark, I, I appreciate your uh, endorsement and your enthusiasm for local politics and your uh, reminding us how important votes are today to determine what happens in our local communities on school boards and city councils and town councils uh, and, and so on. I, I, and I agree with you on that. But the place where I disagree with what you've said in terms of uh, your your uh, endorsement of uh, this democratic experiment is that it is predicated, I think, on in a national in a national scale of votes being counted and gerrymandering not deciding elections and the anti-democratic electoral college somehow functioning democratically and the front page news in the last day or two, that if the presidential election were held today, Donald Trump would be elected. How do you reconcile all of those things? <laughs> There's a couple of things there. Um, number one. Yeah, just a couple. Yeah, 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 yeah. With, 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 with the Donald Trump thing, yes, that it blows my mind that a person who, as I, I, as I said a little while ago, didn't accept the results of, a, of an election, tried to violently, uh, even minimal violence is still violence, tried to violently delay the vote in an attempt to get the vote to go to the House of Representatives where he would have won the election and would have subverted the, the, the will of millions of people around this country um, and also was facing, well, how many, over 75 indictments, I believe, right now? Um, yeah, I think 92, how, 92 counts. 92, <laughs> that's good, a nice round number. Um, how, how that person can be considered legitimate candidate, how they can be leading in polls. And I think I saw something very similar, that in the six most important swing states, he's beating Biden in five of the six right now, is 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 distressing. Unfortunately, it isn't an indictment of democracy because the existence of democracy does not guarantee the best decision. <laughs> it does not guarantee that the people who do go vote are going to make the decision I agree with, or certainly the decision I think is the best decision for the future of our country. And and you could argue, one could argue philosophically that that's actually an inherent flaw in democracy, that when people go out to vote, do they take the time to vote based on hard data and best interest of not just themselves, but of the community and, and the society? 
or do they vote in either a selfish manner or based on feelings or the whole the classic, well, I'd rather have a beer with this person. It's like, well, that's great. I might rather have a beer with somebody, but it doesn't mean I want them in charge of our of our military power. Like, there's a, there's a difference there. I want someone that's competent and stable and uh, is going to use that power uh, very, very uh, judiciously. Um, in, in terms of the flaws in the system, I agree that things certainly could use some updated. The thing I've been talking about since I was chair of redistricting, um, in addition to just, of course, no gerrymandering in Massachusetts, while we don't have a, we didn't have a track record of not gerrymandering, we do now over the last couple of cycles that I think is something that is, is, is impressive and people should be honored by and point to around the country. Um, but something I, I, I really talked a lot about in the last redistricting cycle, and I talked about it with members of Congress, is the number of members of the U.S. House has been artificially frozen at 435 for 100 years now. There is no reason for that. And I know two amazing constitutional scholars like yourself are well aware that the original First Amendment was actually an amendment intended to keep the ratio of representatives in Congress pretty stable over the future, anticipating the growth of, 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 of a continent um, as, as the country would eventually expand and people would, would move here through immigration, uh, as, as was something that over the first probably 100 years of U.S. censuses, which was a novel renewed concept when the United States brought back the idea of a census to determine uh, representation, uh, that there was so much pride taken in how, how quickly the country grew. But yeah, it's, 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 it's falling out of balance because if the original, I believe the Constitution set up the original representation in Congress was about 30,000 people per representative, um, the districts now are somewhere between 750,000 and a million. And that has an impact on that electoral college that certainly, certainly, I think, dilutes the power of where the actual population is in our country. The, the, the question I have for you, Senator, is yeah. how are we supposed to have faith in any of this uh, when, as a practical matter, from my point of view anyway, things are getting worse and Mike Johnson, a true believer in Christian nationalism, an absolute true believer in this right-wing takeover of the government, a do anything to get Donald Trump reinstalled as the leader of the United States, it doesn't matter what it takes, is now the Speaker of the House of Representatives. How are we supposed to deal with that? Right. Just, just a metaphor. We used to say, keep the fox out of the hen house. Well, guess what? The fox is third in line, and he's in charge of the hen house. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, again, I, I obviously share political values with the two of you, and I don't understand how, after what has happened, how that party, at least nationally, has a majority in the U.S. House of Representatives. Like, like that blows my mind, and that a lot of that majority was actually gained in the state of New York. So we're not talking about, well, you know, Oklahoma did something to gerrymander and, and increased its voice. No, it, it, it was in, in New York State, um, people voted for someone like George Santos to become a member of Congress, uh, giving them the majority and allowing for the complete debacle we have seen over almost a year now of, of a party that cannot govern, that somehow has cobbled together a majority. Um, unfortunately, while I, I, I believe wholeheartedly in 
what I was talking about, expanding the House and making it more representative, uh, certainly in making sure that there is no gerrymandering. If, if people are winning in a state like Wisconsin or, or North Carolina because they're engaging in partisan gerrymandering and subverting, again, the will of the actual majority of the state, yeah, that's, that, that's horrible, and that is a subversion of democracy. Well, we're here on Election Day. We are very lucky that uh, Senator Paul Mark, the senator representing the Berkshire, Hamden, Franklin, and Hampshire district, continues to uh, really, uh, we're so very generous with his time to be here, uh, particularly on Election Day. Uh, We're going to continue our conversation with him right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that, no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586 1000. Where is your pain? In your knees, hips, your back? Don't let it sideline you any longer, and don't let them tell you surgery is your only option. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in regenerative medicine, restoring and repairing damaged joint tissue the natural way, using healing properties from your own body to bring you lasting relief with no drugs and no downtime. QC Kinetics is trusted by patients all over America with 150 clinics nationwide. Get started now so you can live big in 2024. Talk about a great use of your FSA and HSA. Put them to work getting you the relief you need so badly. And again, there are no drugs, no downtime, and no surgery. Call QC Kinetics today for a free consultation. Let their medical professionals give you a better path towards that pain-free life. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back talking with one of the 40 senators in the Massachusetts Senate, Senator Paul Mark, representing the Berkshire, Hamden, Franklin, and Hampshire district, and 57 of our 351 cities and towns in the Commonwealth. I wanted to ask you, Senator, in the context of what we were just discussing, the state of democracy, we are all experiencing a rise in hate. And of course, the discussion often is, well, has it been here all along? And we're just sort of seeing it get permission to rear its very ugly head. Or is this a feature of modern American society that we thought that we had transcended? What are your thoughts, Senator Paul Mark? It's, it's both. And this is, I'm going to tell a story that I think is troubling and, and makes things I'm seeing around this country right now extremely troubling, and, and even in relation to what we're talking about, like who's the Speaker of the House right now. Um, for whatever reason, I've had the honor of being 
the go-to person in the Massachusetts legislature for the immigrants from Bosnia and the immigrants from Bosnia who lived through the war in the in the 90s. And I have become good friends with the person who was the first medical refugee to escape Bosnia, with a person who was a general during the, Sar- the siege of Sarajevo, uh, a colonel in, in, in the siege of Sarajevo that are now here in the United States, are, are successful people, are, are raising their children in the United States. And as they have adapted to America, they have also taken a lot of time to inform both their children and their community uh, reminders of what happened and also to warn us, I think, of what is possible. Because we're talking about the 90s. We're not talking about, you know, World War One. We're not talking about things that happened in the Civil War in the 1860s. And the most important thing that I heard was from um, the woman who I was talking about was a medical refugee. She said, we lived in, under Yugoslavia. It was communist state. There was no official religion. All of that went to the background. And we lived in a community where there was Orthodox Christians, Catholics, Muslims, we lived together, these people were my friends, and one day things started changing, and the country started splitting up, and people in the army started wearing, instead of the Yugoslavian flag, they started wearing the flag of the local republic, whether it was Bosnia, Serbia, whoever it might be, and when the Serbian army came to their village in the Bosnian part of the country, the people that had been her friends for years who were of a different religion, they left town, they didn't warn their friends, they let whatever horrible things happen. And so I think the quote she said to me was, there are people that are waiting to do hateful things and they're just waiting to get the permission to be told that it's okay. And that has always disturbed me. And when I look around today at, at, at the potential of what could happen, um, I worry. I worry a lot about that kind of a change happening where we lose this sense of we're one and we break down into either some kind of sectarian violence that we need to avoid. This uh, is all too familiar to me. My great-grandfather was uh, living in a village. We don't know a lot about it because the records were all destroyed, but by uh, yeah. what we've heard is it was uh, a largely um, very comfortable and integrated and uh, heterogeneous community, and he ended up being gassed in a gas chamber for the crime of being Jewish. Uh, we've seen this too often. Uh, we're seeing it play out in the Middle East, uh, and we're all heartbroken to see it, and we're seeing it far too often right here in, um, in our country. Well, this last chance, give us a pitch again. Why should we get off our duffs and go to our polling place? <laughs> yeah, and make us feel better while you're telling yeah, this would story, you would you please? Because this is really depressing. <laughs> we get off our duffs and we go to our polling place because the way you avoid war is by turning out and, and believing in democracy and making those results count. So that should have been a victory. Joe Biden should have taken a giant victory lap, and uh, he, he seems to think he's the only one that can win again. He should be bringing up other people to to move this along. You can't have a person that is just going to... We, we can't have a cult of personality in any direction. So all of us, young people, middle-aged people, we need to get out there, we need to participate, and we need to show the world 
and I mean the world, because the world looks to us that democracy here is vibrant, and whether that means going to vote in, in Pittsfield, North Adams, Northampton, Greenfield, wherever it might be locally today, going to help on a special Senate election, or already starting to get involved in the presidential elections around the corner, this is how we avoid war. Politics is a substitute for war. Democracy is a better system. It is a system that even sometimes if you're frustrated with the results, at least we all had a say and do better next time to make your side win. That's why I've always been involved. I've been working on campaigns since I was 16 because I was angry that Dukakis lost in 88. I was angry as a kid, and I started getting involved because I saw you can make a difference, and he just turned 90, by the way. <laughs> well, that's the best kind of passion I've heard about a 16-year-old. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's just great. Senator Paul Mark, thank you so much. We really are very grateful that you're so generous with your time for us and our listeners. And all of you listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. Go vote if you can and haven't. lost your job. Yeah, this is your life. You've got no hope. You've got no plan. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready-to-go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground-up flour and grains, stone-milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op. Wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate. On the one hand, I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD.